Good morning again. Good morning. Well, God is good all the time. There you go. And all the time. God is good. Yeah, I love it. All right. Um, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, you deserve all the glory. You're no longer the newborn king, but you are forever the king. Came into this world to live and to die so that we might have a reconciled relationship with you. Sinners standing before a holy God, granted peace by your grace. Lord, help us today in your word to have our eyes set on what you have said and the truth of the parable that we're going to be going through. May we rejoice in its truth, and may we be conformed to your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. I, uh, I spoke a little bit out of turn last week. I said we were going to skip the parable. And what I actually meant by that is we were going to skip the parable last week and do it this week. Uh, so I apologize for, for speaking out of turn there. Um, and these are the things you only get when you listen to your own sermon audio and edit the podcast for it. The podcast. It's not a real podcast. It's just a, an updated thing. But when you're listening to it and you know there's something wonky somewhere in the audio and you're like, oh, okay, I got to listen to me again. And it's not fun. So D. Uh, D Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, you can do no greater uh, torture to a pastor than have him listen to his own sermons. So, <laughs> so go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be beginning in verse 23. Let me read. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went, uh, went, uh, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Now, forgiveness is a key tenet of Christianity, is it not? It's something that we, we value as Christians, something we all know at least something about, right? It stands at the core of our salvation, that we are sinners who have done unspeakable evils against a holy God. But then by grace, we're forgiven. 
Not of our own works done in righteousness, so says Paul, but by his grace. That salvation stands uh, because God has determined or is determined to forgive our sins. And the only way he was, he was able to propitiate his own wrath was by sending his own son as a sacrifice. That was the payment that allowed us to be forgiven. Without the sacrifice of his son, there would be no forgiveness. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's what makes the concept of forgiveness so wonderful to Christians, because we know we have this incredible debt, this debt that we could never repay, and so God himself decided to pay it for us. But even in our daily lives, forgiveness is an incredible thing, right? Um, I took it upon myself yesterday to read several articles on forgiveness. I actually was trying to find a particular article that I had just read two weeks ago, and I couldn't find it. So that led me down a uh, path of reading about five different news articles uh, that, that had like some surprising level of forgiveness. And, and I, read, I read some pretty crazy ones. Uh, one of a, of a mother who forgave the murderer of her 25-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, another one of a, of a girl who forgave her father's murderer. And then I, I read of another one who, of, a, of a man who led... Um, I, need to be, I need to phrase this in a way that makes sense. <laughs> uh, so a guy, uh, this guy gets beaten nearly to death by another guy. The, the guy that beat him goes to prison, and then he decides to start witnessing to his own um, uh, abuser, the, the guy that beat him, and actually leads him to Christ. And if you want to read actually some really great stories on this, go to Prison Fellowship's website. They have a whole blog article dedicated, or blog, a blog series of articles dedicated to where there's incredible forgiveness. But then forgiveness is also sweet in our own lives where it's not something as drastic as that. But when somebody tells us, I forgive you, when you've wronged someone and, and you tell them, or, I'm sorry, and, and, and they tell you, I forgive you, or when you've been wronged by someone and you feel just the weight of that, that, that debt that they owe you, and then by God working in you, you can tell them, I forgive you. There's a relief. Forgiveness is really a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to experience. It's a wonderful thing to act on. It's a wonderful thing to read about. But it's not always easy to forgive those who wrong us. In the parable that I read, Jesus gives a hypocritical servant. He refuses to forgive a debt that someone else owes him when he's just been forgiven an incredible debt that he couldn't have paid. So let's work through uh, the text a little bit. Uh, you, have, uh, you have a series of characters, right? The first two characters would be the king, and almost always in these things, the king symbolizes God. So there's this king who has a servant, somebody who is in his charge somehow. And then you have, later, you have characters like the, the, the other servants that go and report, and then the servant that gets thrown in prison first because he owes the smaller amount. 
So let's, let's go through a little bit. Uh, verse 23, we read that this king wants to settle accounts with his servants. Uh, that, that could be thought of as a, a day of like judgment, of reckoning, of balancing the books, of trying to figure out where all the money has gone. You know, this king is, is trying to figure out, uh, or he's, he's going to the servants individually and he's collecting what is owed, at least to this guy. And he owes, he gets this one servant, right, that comes to him who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, that's not a, a form of money that we use, but a, a single talent is equivalent to essentially 20 years of labor. Anybody want to do the math for me real quick of how many, how many uh, years of labor it would take to, to repay this guy? 60,000? No, 60 years. 60 years? If, it's, if he owes... Well, a talent, so 10,000 talents, right? One talent is 20 years of labor. 200,000, there we go. 200,000 years of labor to repay this debt. Is this guy ever going to pay that off? No. <laughs> no, I, never, never, ever, ever, ever. And the point is just that. This man is never, ever going to pay off the debt to this king. Imagine you wake up tomorrow and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay off the national debt. I'm going to start working. I'm going to work at McDonald's, and I'm going to work at Arctic Circle, and I'm going to work at uh, Cup of Sass, and I'm going to get a night job at the mill. I'm going I'm to do this. This is going to be great. I'm going to pay off the national debt. That's basically what this guy is carrying. Uh, a commentary I was reading that was written about 20 years ago said that this guy, this guy owed about $20 trillion based on what was, what was inflation at the time. He ain't ever going to do it. <laughs> so so he, he gets called into judgment, to reckoning, and he comes before this king. And in verse 26, he falls on his knees and he implores him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. But he won't. So either this, this servant is just fakely pleading, knowing that he's never going to be able to do it, or he's completely delusional, and he thinks he's going to somehow be able to pay off his debt. And then we read that the king has a response. It's out of pity for him. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked uh, about this wonderful word, splunkidzomai. And I don't know if you remember splunkidzomai, uh, but, but the, the word here for pity, that the, the master pities the servant, it means that he was moved in his inward being. He just, he, he felt the urge to, to uh, or he felt this guy's pain and he knew that this was just something not possible. And so it says out of this, this inward pity, the master of that servant releases him and forgave him his debt. What an incredible thing, right? Um, he's moved for this man. The, the, king, the king has this wonderful love that expresses in forgiveness. And imagine the relief that this guy must have felt. I mean, unless he really was delusional and he really thought he could pay it off, he must have realized, wow, that sense of freedom. He's not free from servitude, but he's free from having to pay off 20,000 years, 200,000, 20,000, some, some great number of years of labor 
that he's never going to be able to do. But what does that servant do with the sense of relief? Now, up to this point, you and I should be going, wow, yeah, that's me. That's me and my sin with God. I never could have paid off my, my debt. There's no way I could have done enough good works. Why? Because we keep doing evil in the midst of our good works. Or we take pride in our good works when it's actually God who should be, who should be getting all the glory for our good works. Ephesians 2.10. We should be completely walking along with this guy going, yeah, man, oh, wow, oh, man, that's what I feel like. I could never work off the debt with God. But then this servant doesn't turn around with gratitude, but, but in his relief of that personal forgiveness, he thinks, now, how, how can I make some money? Oh, I know, there's this other dude. Let's call him Joe. Joe owes me a lot of money, and, and I'm going to go collect it. Now I'm about to think about the mob. I'm going to go crack some, crack some kneecaps, and uh, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm going to get this, right? But in comparison, what Joe, <laughs> what this guy owes is 100 denarii. Now that's not a small debt. That's a pretty big debt. If you were a soldier working, working in the Roman guard, you'd make one denarii a day. But if you're a servant, you don't make that much. Because your master collects a part of what you're owed. So let's pretend that this is about a year's worth of labor. A year's worth of toil. And I'm just saying that it's because the point is that, that not, not the exact amount, but the point is quite literally that this guy owes him pennies in comparison to what he owed his master. And then he seizes him and he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Imagine being grabbed by the, by, by, by the shirt right here and just being shaken. And pay me. Pay what you owe me. And then his fellow servant does essentially what he did to the master. He falls down and he pleads with him. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. Now this is reasonable. What was unreasonable was the, the, the first servant. But this is reasonable. But then he refuses, and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Which, by the way, essentially means he'll never be able to pay him back. Because if he's in prison, he can't even make a denarii. Because now, now in our prison system, you can actually make a pretty good paycheck in prison. If you just never spend the money, if you don't have child support, if you don't have anything, you can be, spend 10 years in jail, and you can actually make something of when you get out, you can actually spend it. You don't make minimum wage, but it's tolerable over the course of 10 years. But this guy can't. He's locked up. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So somebody else sees this. They see this, this merciless, ruthless cruelty in light of the debt that's forgiven this, this first servant. And they go to the master and they say, you, you need to know what happened. Because this is unacceptable. They know it. And the master knows it. Master summons him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
You could read that in another way. You could paraphrase it. I felt pity for you. I loved you. I forgave you that debt. And what did you do with that forgiveness? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, verse 34, you could also read that as wrath. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, that's even a, a tougher word. The word jailer actually can be literally translated torturers. He didn't just throw him in prison. He locked him up, threw away the key. And that, that additional phrase, until he should pay all his debt, is meant to be kind of a flip of what he did to, a, to the other servant. The reality is, he'll never do it. And then Jesus gives this quite big rebuke. And imagine, imagine all the disciples sitting here. We've worked through this whole passage about people causing others to sin and, and, and discipline and, conf and confrontation in order to preserve the Christian community. Imagine all the disciples sitting there having heard all this, and then they hear this parable, and Jesus gives this final verse. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I imagine that there was maybe a bit of stunned silence there. But what's really wrong here? I mean, the guy owed him a debt anyway, right? Like, why shouldn't he be able to collect? 100 denarii is a lot of money, man. This could set this guy up for a while. I like how Jesus doesn't tell us how this guy racked up that debt. That's a lot of money. And he's about to be sold off. But the guy, the guy knows that his, his master is better than being sold off to somebody else, and so that's why he pleads with him initially. But what did he do? What did any of us do to rack up such a debt with God in our sin that it takes God himself to die for us in order to be redeemed? And what we read in this story, what's so terrible about this is, is, is the, the, the context surrounding it, right? This is, this is about, uh, I mean, this is in response to when Peter asked just two verses earlier, and this is where we closed last week, when Peter says, uh, comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now remember, in Jewish culture, that was either two or four times, depending on the, depending on the problem. Usually two if it's a big one, four times if it's, a, if, if it's kind of a minor infraction, right? Um, and so Peter's probably being pretty gracious when he goes, as many as seven times? But then Jesus replies, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Whether that's 77s or 70 times seven or 77, the point is ultimately you keep forgiving. And this wicked servant in this parable took his own forgiveness and returned it with cruelty to those around him. What we see here is the antithesis of Jesus' wonderful beatitude in Matthew 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
And what we see here is cursed are the merciless, for they will receive judgment. Why would someone do this? Why would someone who had such a debt forgiven them go turn around and take that same sense of forgiveness and just crush somebody, this, another person? Why would somebody do that? This seems incomprehensible, doesn't it? To, take, to, to be forgiven an, an unpayable debt and then try and collect from someone else what, what, what is actually a comprehensible debt? But then, if you really think about it, I think this happens more often than we like to assume. I think you and I often do this with someone. We hold a grudge after, after somebody has wronged us, and maybe, maybe as time goes on and you pray and you think about it, and, and you realize, wow, I haven't forgiven that person. I think, I think what, what, what we need to come, to come to grips with is that this probably happens to us more often than we'd like to admit, where we hold, a, hold, hold in our heart this hatred for somebody who's, who's wronged us, instead of being willing to forgive them. And by God's grace, it comes to a point where, where we realize, oh man, you know, I need, to, I need to reconcile. That's God's grace in you. God's Holy Spirit working that causes us to want to repent. But I can even think back of some people who have had feuds within the church. Whether, whether it was in my first church, about a, a, there was a, there's a long story. I think I've told you guys some of this. There was, a, there was a, a long business meeting that I had to sit through as a member of the church where, where we were voting on whether or not to forgive this group that was gathering in the church basement without putting it on the church calendar and praying for the church. We, I literally sat through, I mean, I can't tell you how long this meeting was. It was either an hour, two hours, or something. But I was sitting there wondering when they were going to make popcorn. Because the arguments were going back and forth on whether or not these people should be forgiven or whether they should be put under church discipline. Because one of the ladies was the church secretary, so she should know that she needs to put her name when they rent a space. It was just petty. And I'm sitting in a room of people that quite literally read their Bible every single day. They pray constantly. It was a, I mean, this meeting had probably 100 people in it, and the church was about 150 on a Sunday, and, and there were so many Sunday school groups, and we tried to do these intermingling things. So we lit, the, the senior group would come to the youth group, and they would pray for us, and we would pray for them, and we, would, we were encouraged to open doors and get to know names and, and really, really get to know everyone, and here we are voting on whether or not we're going to forgive someone who was praying? God forbid. <laughs> but then I also think of specific people that I've encountered where something happens, whether I, whether, whether I offend them or whether, which you know is completely incomprehensible in and of itself, uh, but, but whether I offend them or whether something happens with our kids or, or, or whether, whether it's just a total accident and then, you know, it's irreconcilable. They cut us off. They, they, they leave. And I think you guys have had that happen too. Where you've, you've had somebody who just said they were a Christian, but they, 
want to break fellowship or they want to they, they want to break Christian love for something silly. And the reality is that when that happens, um, it's outward proof of a lack of inward change. There's a, there, there's a long-standing kind of phrase about baptism in, in Baptist circles, that, that it's an outward action, it's an outward proof of an inward change. But in this case, we have an outward proof of no inward change. Taking forgiveness and hating a brother Now, I, I know, I know uh, you guys know this, but, but when it comes to forgiveness, we are the person in the beginning, and what happens with that forgiveness is, is a question of what we do. How, how, how we are responsible for, for forgiving others. We are responsible for forgiving others incredible wrongs because we have been forgiven by God incredible wrongs. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Jeremiah 31.34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God does not hold our sins against us. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's why Jesus had to die. That God no more holds your sins against you. Doesn't mean you don't have to battle sin throughout the rest of your life, but God no more holds it against you. And then with that forgiveness, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to forgive others. We're supposed to pray like Jesus does in, in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts. Come on. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. As we. Forgive us as we forgive. Or later in Matthew 6, uh, verses 14 to 15 specifically, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Or as Paul also applies this concept in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the thing. The ground of our ability, the ground, anybody that's an electrician knows what a ground is, but, but think, think of it, the, 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 how about this, a better example. The foundation of our ability to forgive others their wrongs against us is that we have been forgiven the wrongs that we have done against God. There's a lot of negative examples of this in Scripture. And I want to give you another negative example. In Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews, um, uh, he, he explains what happens when there's two, well, not what happens, but he explains that there's essentially these two groups, and he gives an illustration for it, but it's verses 4 to 8, right? Uh, and I'll just read, I'll read 4 to, 
Four to six, real quick. Four, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, which means to be illumined, like have a flashlight turned on, be able to see, or having been shown something. It is in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted or eaten of or experienced the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The author then gives us this wonderful illustration to help us understand what's happening here. For, the, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, you can think of that as the, as the grace of God pouring down, and produces a crop useful to those for who, whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. There's one field, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, for its end is to be burned. So here we have two groups of people. Actually, you know what? He, he, he finalizes it. I, I, well, uh, just, just to read verse, verse 9 as well. Uh, the author of Hebrews helps us understand it even further. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There are two groups at stake here, or listed here. There's the, those who, who are uh, destined for better things, the things of salvation. And then there's these other people who have seen and tasted and experienced and shared. But, but when the rain pours on it, they produce thorns and thistles. I think that's a wonderful illustration of the gentleman in our parable. He saw mercy. He felt forgiveness. He experienced. He tasted of what it's like to be free. To be free of all this debt that was weighing down on him. But then when this rain poured, what happened? When the rain that fell down on, on him as a field, what happened? Did he produce a crop useful to be harvested? No. He produced thorns and thistles. These are not easy words. They're not meant to be easy words. They're warnings. The forgiven ought to forgive. In fact, I think that's my sermon title. Yeah, the forgiven ought to forgive. Good. All right. The forgiven ought to forgive. And those who refuse to forgive prove that they do not experience the better things belonging to salvation. They are still in need of gospel. But, but this is a truncated account. This, this parable is just a quick explanation of this. You are not yet set for condemnation. You are not yet set having a reckoning of your account. How do I know that? You're breathing. You're here. As you hear these words, there's hope that you might not be of this group. There's some people who I watch the, the rain of God's blessing pour out who honestly, it, it looks like a crop, but man, when it, when it keeps on growing, it actually looks like, like tares and weeds. It's not growing very tall. 
Not thinking of anyone specific, praise God, but there, but there, are, there are times that I've witnessed this in, in, in friends where they come to church and they look like they're doing great, but then, golly, as time goes on, it produces thorns and thistles. And I watch as that salvation I was so sure they had drives them directly down. It's like if, the, if, if, if they were driving on the freeway and you had two options, right? I'm watching them start to veer towards the wrong side of the road to go on the wrong direction. And I'm begging for, begging for them to turn and come back. But gosh, they just keep heading to that wrong lane. There's a gospel amidst this, terrible, this terrifying warning that we who hear these words and see this parable and realize our own hard-heartedness against those who've wronged us, that we might not be this guy. We have a responsibility as Christians to forgive those who have wronged us. If you're a Christian, is there any other Christian who's wronged you that you need to forgive? Is there someone in the back of your mind right now that you're like, ooh. <laughs> someone that you might need to call or write a letter to or, or just forgive to stop holding on to the weight of their trespass, the weight of their debt in your heart. Or even worse, is there anyone that you're thinking of that you're like, man, they're beyond the redeeming grace of God. If they're breathing, you can still preach the gospel to them. But then there's a sobering reminder I want you to keep too, because there's many people who appear to call out to the Lord for forgiveness that are unwilling to give it to others. The sermon summary that's in your bulletin, I really want you to remember. Being forgiven so great a debt as our sin, it's unthinkable that a Christian would be unwilling to forgive wrongs done to them. That word unthinkable, I stole from a commentary from the New American Commentary series, and I love it. Because this whole parable is unthinkable. Why, why, why would somebody be so unforgiving? Having been forgiven so great a debt, it's like you want to be the guy that jumps into the parable and shakes the first servant, grabs him away from the other one and says, no, no, repent. Don't you remember what your master forgave from you? Don't you remember how great a debt you had? Why are you holding it against him? Why are you bearing thorns and thistles? You want to you start weeding their yard, <laughs> confronting them in their sin. But there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people who I've met who go to a youth conference and, and cry out to the Lord for forgiveness because mercy feels great or forgiveness seems like the right thing or, or maybe it's just a bunch of emotion or everybody else is walking forward. Whatever, whatever the peer pressure is at the time, they seem to do it for the 12th time. 
And then when you go and you talk to them and you try and, you try and help them and, and, and turn them into the Bible and disciple them, you know what they do? They say, oh, you know, I already asked for forgiveness. I'm all right, man. I'm all right. It's okay. Jesus loves me. He's my buddy. But then when somebody wrongs them, they hold every single card in order to ruin their lives, in order to ruin whatever something else could be done. I think, oh man, I can't use a name. But I think of one guy I know who, uh, the, the, he, he, he refused ever to talk to another guy because of something that had wronged him, uh, some, something that he had done to wrong him. And it was painful to be around him. It was painful to watch. If you love stories of forgiveness, like I spent reading yesterday, but you're unwilling to offer forgiveness to another when they've wronged you, then you need to read this parable again. You need to consider your own heart. And I say that as a warning, much like Jesus at the end when he says, uh, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is important in Christianity. It's important to receive. It's important to enact. Let's close today reading the Apostles' Creed, shall we? Take out your bulletins. Open up to the middle. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.